Welcome to the Elm City Church Podcast. As a community of people who are trying to practice the way of Jesus together, we hope that these messages inspire and equip you for the journey of faith in everyday life. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. And this is Paul writing to the church in Philippi. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ and comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I want to make a statement here to start us off. We are not the center of the universe. (laughs) Can you believe it? The world does not revolve around us. Now, that might be a revolutionary thought today. Uh, Back in the 15th century, there was an astronomer by the name of Nicholas Copernicus. Perhaps you uh, have vague memories of that name from history class. uh, Who, in observing the universe with the naked eye, and this was decades before the telescope, by the way, made some observations that revolutionized the whole world. See, up until then, everyone of his day thought that the earth was the center of the universe and that the sun and the planets all rotated around it. So in 1514, Nicholas distributed a handwritten, unpublished manuscript entitled The Little Commentary, which contains some of his findings. Here are three of them. Number one, there is no one center in the universe. Number two, the earth's center is not the center of the universe. And number three, the center of the universe is near the sun. Now, these were revolutionary uh, findings for Nicholas. In fact, they are historically referred to as the Copernican Revolution. Fast forward to the 20th century, a Swiss psychologist by the name of Jean Piaget, known for his work on child development, specifically his stage theory for cognitive development in children, said that each child must have their own Copernican Revolution. See, up until this point in history, children were largely treated as simply a smaller version of adults. Piaget was one of the first to identify that the way children think is different from the way that adults think. Now, that might seem revolutionary, uh, and it was for them at the time, but up until then, that's not what they thought. For instance, during what he called the pre-operational stage, children are so engrossed in egocentric thoughts that they believe that their world is shared by everyone else. Am I right, parents? Where are you? Kids at a certain age can't understand that there are other ways of looking at the world and interpreting the information. For example, a child 
in the game of hide and seek may simply close their eyes and believe that others cannot see them. I didn't know that until I became a dad. And then I was brought up to speed on, on how children sort of think and how they act. And that was a, a new one for me when I saw my child play hide and seek and they thought that, you know, I, I was invisible when they put their hands over their eyes. See, they can't, they can't take in the information like adults can, and it's perfectly reasonable to them that that's how reality would be. But here's the thing. Sooner or later, life does not cooperate <laughs> with their perception of reality, and they have a revolution, a Copernican revolution that reinforces the fact that the world doesn't revolve around them. Maybe some of you parents with teenagers are still waiting for that day to come. <laughs> but the truth is that we all need this type of revolution. And we need to continue to have this type of revolution. You know, it's been said that we live in an age of self. Self-realization, self determination, self-esteem, and self-help. We even have a magazine called Self. Life as we know it has become more and more tailored to you and me. Um, the robots know how to get our attention. Did you know that 93 million selfies are taken and uploaded every single day worldwide? 93 million. And what I think is happening as a result of the self-experiment is that part of it is producing um, pockets of what we might call short-term happiness. Those small um, dopamine hits that don't last but make us happy in the moment. Where am I? You know, who am I? Who am I with? Who do I know? It's all a reflection of, of who we are. And yet, I think what we're going to find and what we're finding now with the studies is that anxiety is at an all-time high. Depression is at an all-time high. We're still longing and starving for long-term joy. There's something in us that has not been fulfilled yet in the age of self. Well, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul lays out what we could call the marks of selfless living. A carryover from the bigger theme of unity in the church, which is where we've been parked in, in, in the, um, the book of Philippians. We've been looking at this theme of church unity. Now, if we're to look at the first four verses of this chapter, chapter 2, in the original language what we'd find is that the way that it's laid out in Greek is actually one big long sentence. Uh, if you've been following along with us, um, if you're part of an immersed group, right now we're going through the New Testament in a different way than we typically might read the Bible. It's been really refreshing for us to go and look at sort of uh, the text in story form and so you don't have the annotations, you don't have the verses listed out, and it sort of reads a little bit more like, like a story um, or a chapter book. 
But out in Greek, you know, you've got sentences that are written this way regularly. And this is one big, long sentence. If you, it's actually a, an English teacher's worst nightmare. It's like the run-on sentence that Paul is writing here. And, and Paul writes these four verses with what we might call a conditional clause pattern. Uh, that is, he writes a lot of if-then statements. What I mean by that is, if this is true, then this should follow. And it's a pattern that he follows in this particular passage. Verse three is really the heartbeat of what he's saying, and that's sort of where I wanna um, camp out this morning. Let's read it together. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. See, this is a revolution that we all need, I think. It's the reminder that, you know, as followers of Jesus, the way that we orient towards one another is actually the key. The way that we orient towards others, and particularly as Paul is pointing out here in the church community, the way that we orient towards others and not ourselves becomes key, becomes characteristic of somebody who is following Jesus. What we find here is that Paul gives us two things not to do, and then he gives us one thing to do. So two things not to do, and then one thing to do. The two don'ts. Let's start there. First, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition. Everybody here and everybody watching, you don't need someone to teach you what selfishness is. It's just the thing that you don't have to give a three-point lesson about. It's the thing that seems to be embedded in our being from the time that we're born, selfishness. Uh, but I want you to geek out with me for a second because I think this is really interesting. The original Greek term translated selfish ambition is the Greek word erathon, originally had a positive meaning so it wasn't necessarily a negative connotation. Originally, the word simply meant a day laborer, uh, someone who went out and worked for a day and got paid to do his work. And eventually, through time, the meaning of this, of this word, this phrase, it morphed into what we might consider a mercenary, somebody who worked for someone regardless of what that person paid them to do, and, and even for a bad reason. Basically, the attitude became, I'll just work for you and do whatever you want as long as I get paid for it. Eventually, the word morphed through history even further until it became known as the self-seeking advantage over others, regardless of the effect that it had on them. And it became to be known as a negative thing, selfish ambition. Fun fact, Aristotle, you might remember that guy, he used this word to describe the unfair and self-serving ambition of politics. <laughs> and, you know, winning no matter what. Uh, stepping on the neck of others to get ahead. And I gotta be honest, I don't think much has changed in that arena. <laughs> Especially as we've, as we've seen over the past few years. I think that that, that idea is very much alive and, and well. And Aristotle was just noting it for his day, but man, um, 
Here's the second don't that Paul is giving us. The second don't. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. The Old English translation, uh, if, if you read in something like the, the, the New King James or the King James Version, it, it actually spells out the word conceit by saying vain glory. I think I like that a little bit more, like that, that kind of capture of this idea, vain glory. They all derive their meaning from the Greek word kenodoxia, meaning a person who cherishes exaggerated experiences of their own importance. Exaggerated experience of one's own experience, uh, of one's own importance. This has always been a problem. It's always been a problem. And, and even so, Paul addresses it elsewhere in Romans chapter 12, 3, when he said, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Someone once said that there's two ways to enter a room. The first way says, here I am. And the second one says, ah, there you are. Two different postures. One way is for people to notice you. And the other way is for you to notice people. And so the question might be, well, how did Paul enter a room? Well, Paul, I think, entered the room with the, ah, there you are, mode. How do we know this? Because Paul started out his letters to the early church by saying things like this, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, a slave to Christ, and a servant to all. This is the posture that Paul models for us even in his writings. Now, remember Paul, the guy that was changed. We talked about this during the course of this, this uh, series, but also elsewhere. I'm just so blown away by it, I can't get over it. Something happened to Paul that changed his entire life. It was so drastic and so powerful that here's a guy that goes from throwing entire families of believers in prison to now writing most of the New Testament to giving us the, these, these precepts that we can follow. Like the model of what it looks like to be a Christian in the world is coming from the guy that used to throw Christians in prison. It's powerful. Something happened to Paul that has changed his entire life and now he wants to tell us how we can live if we're following Jesus. So where are we at here? Uh, the two don'ts. Don't live selfishly. Don't live pridefully. Now we, we turn our attention to a third mark. We're gonna go from the negative to the positive here. And, and Paul gives us something that we should do. He says, do live humbly. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. This is revolutionary. It might not seem that way at the outset, but as we do a little digging into the culture of Paul, what we find out is that this is actually more significant for his hearers at the time than we might think. Because in ancient culture, the concept of lowliness was seen in a negative light. See, the Greek culture especially, you know, they used to call people who were not Greek, they used to call them barbarians, to give you an idea. They used to call people that were not Greek, low-minded people. 
Maybe some simpletons is the way that the Greek people thought of other cultures. And so you can see how this is, is a powerful statement to those of his time. It becomes a virtue here in Paul's writing. Why? Because the way of Jesus, and Paul knows this, is counterculture. So the culture thought the whole time, everybody else, they're outsiders, the other, the barbarian. The way of Jesus, Paul is saying now, actually invites people in. It's different than the culture at large in thought and belief. We gotta be really careful to not be informed more by our pop culture, current cultural narrative than we are by the text of scripture. I wanna be real clear about that, you know, because it's so easy to get swept up into the narrative of our current culture. But let me just say this, cultures come and go. I know it's kind of weird to think about, but you know, the culture of our current state will one day be gone. Like, things change. Like, people's minds change. <laughs> Policies change. Um, if we look at history and time, we see that to be true. We're not all there is. And so what we have to look at is the beacon of truth, which is void, like, of our, of our uh, feelings, oftentimes. It's the word of God, and that's why as a church, this is where we approach truth from, the scriptures. This is what made Christians stand out in their time. They were living in ways that were opposed to the current reality of their culture of that day. Now, if we keep reading down to verse, chapter, uh, verse five, we can see how the dots connect a little bit. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus was the outpost sign for what it meant to become lowly, to serve, to come among the people, and to be elevated by going down. That's, that's the mark of someone who's following Jesus. In his helpful book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, Tim Keller makes this remark, and I wanna read this section because I think it's so, so helpful when it comes to this idea. And Tim Keller is a big fan of C.S. Lewis, so here he quotes, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity makes a brilliant observation about gospel humility at the very end of his chapter on pride. If we were to meet a truly humble person, Lewis says, we would never come away from meeting them thinking that they were humble. They would not be always telling us that they were a nobody because a person who keeps saying that they are a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself. Not needing to connect things with myself. It is an end to thoughts such as, I'm in this room with these people. Does that make me look good? Do I want to be here? True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, 
I stopped thinking about myself. The freedom of self-forgetfulness, the blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. I thought that was so good. You know, years ago, someone asked Dr. Carl Menninger, uh, who founded the Menninger Clinic in Topeka, Kansas, what he would advise if a patient felt like they were going to have a nervous breakdown. Most expected that he would suggest that the patient go and seek a psychiatrist. But here's, here's what he said. He said, I would advise this person to lock their door at home, go across town, find someone who has a great need, and do something to help that person. Essentially, he's advising someone to shift the focus off of themselves and on to someone else. And that's really the heartbeat of our text this morning. We are not the center of the universe. It's not all about us. In fact, when we're living as called out ones, marked ones, humility becomes our new posture. The same humility by which Jesus served others. And that that ought to be a challenge for all of us here today. That the way that Jesus served others was in humility. Man, I'm still trying to figure that out. It is not easy to, to live into that and to walk into that. But we're called to grow in that as followers of Jesus. You know, so far our theme in, in, in Philippians, in, in this, this wonderful letter that's been written to a church that Paul deeply cares about. You know, I, I think about that oftentimes. It's like, you tell people things in this way. You write letters to people because you care about them, right? Even if it's for maybe a hard situation. You talk with people. You sit down with people. You, you, you write letters. You express how you feel and what you see because you care about the people. Paul cared about these people in Philippi. He cared about this church. He wanted to see them do well. And our, our theme has really focused around unity within the church. Unity within the church. And I think more than ever before, um, we're at a time and a place in history where the only thing that's going to help the world's view outside of the power of Jesus in and of himself to change hearts and lives from the church is going to be its unity. We've been tested and tried in this so much lately. Our ability to be unified. Never in my life have I ever walked through a season like this where the, um, you know, the political discourse and the cultural issues of our day collide at one moment and now the church at large is caught up in a firestorm of all kinds of stuff. And it just, it's so hard. It's been such a challenging year, not just because of, COVID, but because of everything else that's been going on. It's been so challenging to figure out as pastors and leaders, how do we help our church and how do we help you? I'm not just talking about the church at large out there. I'm talking to, to, to this church, Elm City Church, this community, this body of believers represented in this room today and watching online. How do we help you to stay unified in disagreements? How do, how do we help you? to stay unified in differences of opinion, 
on secondary issues. Listen, um, what I find fascinating about the early church is so powerful. And, and, and Alby talked about this uh, last week as well because it's a carryover of the idea of unity. That the church is supposed to send a powerful message to the world that Jesus is who he says he is. And, and what he's saying here is they're gonna know that because of what the church looks like. When the world wants to know what Jesus is like, they should be able to look at the unity of the church. Seems like a challenging premise given our current cultural climate. But I wanna encourage you today because I believe the gospel brings hope and the gospel brings encouragement. Now, you do, do you know that the early church, as, as romantic as it often sounds, was filled with division, filled. I mean, we think that we have it bad in our current cultural crises going on everywhere. Do you know that, um, you know, did you know that the church in Antioch was dealing with uh, issues of racism? Did you know that the church in, in Antioch was so diverse that they were constantly running into the issue of nationalism? Political allegiance over Christian conviction? What they were experiencing, I would say, was more tumultuous than even what we're experiencing in our current day. And yet, and this is, this is the miracle, the church blew up. It, it thrived. It started with a small group of people, uh, followers of the way. And in just 300 years after the time of Christ, Christianity went from being a small group of, of, of people to being the dominant way of life in the Roman world. Incredible. Through all adversity, through all the obstacles, through every cultural issue you can think of, and more, the church thrived. That is good news. That is good news for us today. That is something that we can lean and, and live into today, I believe. Because what that means is in the midst of all kinds of diversity, in the midst of all kinds of trials, the church committed to a higher unity. You know what that unity was based around? The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's what held them together. That's what walked them through the trials and the tribulations. And that is what we desire here at Elm City Church. And beyond that, that's what we desire for the church at large. That's what we're working towards. That's what we're gonna put our time and our energy towards as a community of faith. And so I wanna just invite you as I close here to pray with me into that. I, I assume that if you're here today, uh, that that sounds like appealing to you and that's something that you might want. I hope so. I hope so because that's the thing that's going to make us stand out among the culture is our unity with each other. Paul's talking about the unity in the church. So will you just pray with me for a quick second that we would just specifically pray into, can we follow Paul's ideals here and, and ask God for help to pray for the unity of this church and to pray for the unity of the larger capital C church in the world so that we can be a light on a hill. Jesus, thank you for today. I just want to thank you, Lord, that you've given us the opportunity, you've granted us the ability to meet. I don't want to take that for granted, Lord. 
fact that we can come together today and freely worship you. But God, we do want to approach your throne today and ask that you would, that you would sanction us, Lord, that you would give us a higher unity that Paul is talking about through all trial and all adversity. God, we, we ask that today that you would make the church an example to the world, that we would begin to turn the tide of the, maybe the cultural or, or uh, popular thought, which doesn't seem to be so pleasant about the church at this point. Help us to reclaim the most important thing, which is our unity based around your life, death, and resurrection. Not our beliefs in politics, not our, not our leanings on cultural moorings or issues, but it's how high we hold you up. God, will you help us today to do that? I know that's not an easy feat at times when we're so caught up in what's going on in our current day. It has the power to divide us, and we've, we've experienced that. I, I wanna pray right now, Lord, that you would be the Lord over all relationships that are, have been broken as a result of political discourse in families right now in Jesus' name, that you would come in power and begin to repair the damage that's been done through those sorts of things. I know that in a room like this, that, that representation is probably pretty high. You wanna work. You wanna restore. So we just, we wanna move out of the way and let you do your work. We, we open ourselves to you right now with a posture of humility and say, will you do something in us today that you haven't done yet? You're in the business of changing hearts and changing lives. And we invite you to do that today, Jesus. So come now as we worship you through song, as we respond to the gospel yet again, I pray that you would be made known and that we wouldn't walk out of here the same, but that we would walk out of here with a new sense of unity and a desire to see unity happen in our community. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We hope this message has been impactful. For more information about how you can connect with Elm City Church, visit elmcitychurch.com or follow us on social media. We'd love to help you take some next steps.